other people are going to think you're really evil incarnate, that there's something else going on. You can't be real. You must be a hypocrite. There must be some facade. You can't be as nice as you appear to be. You ever heard that? Get used to it. That's how they treated the Son of God. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part six of Jesus, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. The question that you have been presented with throughout this series in Mark chapter three is this, who do you say Jesus is? When you consider his words and deeds, his claims, is he a power-hungry lunatic, a possessed liar, or truly the Messiah? Well, as we learned last time, how you respond to Jesus has real and serious implications for your life. And today, Tom will explore these important and life-changing implications. The challenge to you today is this. Will you respond to Jesus as Lord over your life? Keep that in mind as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. The disciples gathered there at his feet didn't agree with the assessment of the scribes and Pharisees either. They didn't think that he was a demonic liar on some agenda for Satan. Instead, his disciples had been led by the work of the Spirit of God to the third option. They had embraced him for what he claimed to be. They believed that he was the divine Lord, and therefore they subjected their wills to his. He was the Lord. So here's this third group. Fascinating how on one day in God's providence, all of those views are represented in one place at one time. It's as if we're intended to be confronted with the choices as they were that morning. Any neutral people standing around the fringes of the crowd had to make a choice. Now, we're not told what happened next, but it's clear that Jesus' family did not prevail. They did not take him back to Nazareth. They went home empty-handed, and undoubtedly his brothers went home angry and offended at his public response to them. Later, in God's grace, they would come to embrace him as Lord and Savior. But at this point, they go home angry, offended, and as John records later, sarcastic about his claims. Now, this passage, verses 31 to 35, has some very serious implications, and not just those verses, but all of this section together. Some serious implications that I want us to think about First of all, in response to Jesus' claims, there are only three viable options. The same three choices taken on that one day in Palestine. Either he is a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord and God. Now, it's very important to realize that there is no middle ground. You see, there are always people who who think they can have it both ways. They can acknowledge the remarkable moral character of Jesus Christ and yet still not acknowledge that he is Lord and God. The world is filled with people like this. He was a great prophet. He's a wonderful teacher. Yes, he was a fabulous example of how we ought to live. It's just not logically possible to take that position. C.S. Lewis 
was right. This is what he writes in Mere Christianity, one of my favorite quotes. I don't agree with everything C.S. Lewis wrote. He, he was not a theologian. He had some flawed views on several fronts, but I believe he was a brother in Christ. And on this front, I think he was absolutely right. Listen to what he writes. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. It's not an option. These are the options. And by the way, you can't be neutral. You can't say, I'm not going to land. Jesus won't let you do that either. In fact, turn to Matthew 12, and let me show you what he says on that very day, on that very morning, in this context. Matthew chapter 12, right after verse 25, that encounter with the Pharisees where they accuse him of being in league with Satan, being possessed by Satan, and he rebukes them. Notice one statement he makes that Matthew records that Mark does not record. Very interesting. Verse 30, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus was saying to those people gathered there in that crowded house that morning, faced with these three different groups of people, but maybe they were still on the fence, still undecided, still neutral, still trying to decide what they were going to do with Jesus. Jesus said, let me tell you something you can't do. You can't be neutral. The one who is not with me is what? Against me. Can I just stop here for a moment and say that you may be in a, from a Christian home but you know in your heart that you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. And you might have kidded yourself that that means you really just haven't taken a position. You're just for you. You're not really against Christ. You just want to do what you want to do, enjoy what you want, and you're still neutral about Christ. Jesus says, can't happen. You're not neutral. If you are not with me, you are against me. Decide where you're going to be, but you can't be neutral. John Broadus, the great American theologian of the time of the Civil War, wrote this, In this great and deadly struggle, there can be no neutrality. No man can be friends with both sides, nor be indifferent to both. It is probable that many of those present were thinking they would not take sides between Jesus and the blaspheming Pharisees, Men often think that they are by no means opposing Christ's service, though they are not engaged in it. This is impossible. If we are not yielding Christ our whole heart, we are really yielding him nothing. 
professed neutrality may even be more offensive to him. Better to be on one side or the other than to say you you just haven't decided. There's only these three options. Jesus did claim to be God, and these are the, the alternatives. There's a second implication of this section we've studied together, and I've touched on this already, so I'm not going to spend much time on it tonight, but I just want to remind you of it as we sort of wrap up this section. As Jesus' followers, we're going to be treated the same way he was treated. As Jesus' followers, we too will be thought of often as either deceived, simple, naive, weak-minded, or even as far as insane, out of our minds, lost our senses, or liars, hypocrites, some kind of selfish agenda actually in league with the devil himself. Pick up the newspaper, and you will find people saying these things about Christians today, about you and about me and about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Nothing has changed. Jesus said, The student is not greater than his master. If this is how they treated me, this is how they'll treat you. So folks, get used to that. Don't worry about that. Don't be offended by the fact that some people are gonna think you're simple and naive. Other people are gonna think you're really evil incarnate, that there's something else going on. You can't be real. You must be a hypocrite. There must be some facade. You can't be as nice as you appear to be. You ever heard that? Get used to it. That's how they treated the Son of God. There's a third implication that comes out of this text. Very important one for us to understand. This is really at the heart of this passage that we've studied tonight. For every Christian, our primary relationships are our spiritual relationships. For every Christian, our primary relationships are our spiritual relationships. This runs absolutely contrary to the tendency of Christians today to practically worship. I came across an amazing quote from the pen of Kent Hughes that I have to share with you. He wrote on this very topic. Listen to what he writes. He says, there is especially among Christians another reason why the family is in trouble. It's worship. In a valiant effort to stem the tide, many Christians and non-Christians alike have made the family everything. Every moment of every day, every involvement, every commitment, every engagement is measured and judged by the question, how will this benefit my family? While this is generally commendable, it can degenerate into familial narcissism. The four walls of the home become a temple, and only within and for those walls are any sacrifices made. Thus, we commit domestic idolatry. The tragedy is this. Every earthly loyalty, if it is made central, becomes idolatry, and all idolatries eventually destroy their worshipers. What can we do to preserve and elevate our families? The answer begins with the family putting love and obedience to Christ above everything else. That's what Jesus was saying. When his family, his human family, was standing outside, and he was surrounded by his disciples, and he said, this is my true family. This is what matters most. If you are a Christian, your primary relationships are spiritual relationships. It's not as if your family relationships aren't important. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus didn't mean that we should sever all family relationships and treat them as unimportant. 
Jesus commanded parents to be cared for. Later in Mark chapter 7, Jesus took care of Mary at the foot of the cross even as he was dying in John 19. He made a point to look up his own human brothers after his resurrection and see them come to faith, 1 Corinthians 15. We are commanded to love our human family members. But here's the point. Our relationship to God and his people must take precedence over our relationship to our earthly families. This has always been true. In fact, Jesus understood this from the Scripture. Quite an interesting account back in Exodus. Turn back to Exodus for a moment. Exodus 32, about the tribe of Levi. You remember this account? Exodus 32, verse 25. This is at the golden calf. Verse 25, now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered to him. Now Moses said to the Levites, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Now, I don't think we can begin to understand the drama of that scene. Moses has been on the mountain. Aaron, in his absence, has made this golden calf. The people have declared a feast day to Yahweh. But in reality, they're really worshiping in an idolatrous way. They have decided how they will worship God, and they've done it in the form of this golden calf. Whether they were worshiping the calf or whether, like Baal was often worshiped, the calf was just like this powerful being on which God was supposed to ride, they were making up the rules about how to worship. And it degenerated, we learn in this text and in the New Testament, it degenerated into a drunken orgy. And Moses comes down in the middle of that, and he rallies the sons of Levi around him, and he says, I want you to take your sword, and all of those who refuse to turn from what's going on here, I want you to kill them. If it's your brother, kill him. If it's your neighbor, kill him. That's a hard thing. It actually happened, folks. This is what the Levites did. Now, I want you to see the divine commentary on this. Turn to Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy 33. Here is the blessing of Moses as he reaches the end of his life. This is a long time later, almost 40 years. And notice what he says in verse 8 in his blessing of Levi. Of Levi, he said, let your Thummim and your Urim belong to your godly man. Those were the the tools for discerning God's will, you remember, the breastplate. Whom you proved at Massah, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them, and he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. In other words, Moses praises the Levites for being more concerned about God and his ways than about their sons and their brothers and their father and their mother. So this was the biblical pattern, and Jesus understood this. You see, our greatest relational priority is Christ himself. Jesus 
could not have made this clearer. Turn over to Matthew chapter 10. You remember this passage. It's another of Jesus' hard sayings. Matthew chapter 10, verse 35, verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, for a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He said, listen, you need to know that I did come to bring peace, but I didn't come to bring unilateral peace. In fact, the fact that you follow me may create tension and conflict like you won't believe, even within your family. And in case you think the price is too high, verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus says, first and foremost, your priority is to me, not to any human relationship. That hasn't changed, folks. That's still true. We have obligations to love the people around us, to love our family, to care for them. And often, those obligations don't conflict with the responsibilities we have to Christ. And we're grateful for that. But there are times in all of our lives when obedience to Christ has to be more important to us than even our families and how they respond. If our relationship with Christ endangers our relationship with our human family, as one author says, it is a price worth paying. Then after Christ, our greatest relational priority is to those who are his followers, our brothers. Of course, the closest are those followers of Christ who are at the same time part of our human family. It's a wonderful thing when your own human family is also in Christ. Then they are the closest to you. But for those of you who are Christians with no other believers in your family, look around. In the words of Jesus, these are your mothers and your brothers and your sisters. Look at Mark chapter 10. Jesus makes both points in this passage. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. You remember the conversation has been about the, the rich coming to faith. Jesus says that's hard. In fact, it's impossible. And they said, who then can be saved? And so then Peter begins to think about this, verse 28. And Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive, watch this, a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, the, the last part of that we all understand. We understand that whatever we give up here, we will receive manifold in eternity, in the age to come, in heaven, all of the blessings that we talked about this morning in our inheritance. But how do we receive all of that now, in the present age? Jesus was making it clear that you may leave a mother because of your loyalty to Christ, you may leave a parent, you may leave a son, you may leave a daughter, because of your loyalty to Christ, they may want to have nothing to do with you. But in this life, when you attach yourself 
to Christ, you attach yourself to all of those who are his followers. And now, even in this life, you have far more mothers and brothers and sisters and land and farms because you have it in the people of God. For every Christian then, our primary relationships are our spiritual relationships. The last point I want you to get, the last serious implication, is I want you to come to grips with the intimacy of the relationship we enjoy with Christ. Did you really catch what Jesus said? He said that those disciples gathered around him that morning were closer to him than the family he grew up with for 30 years. That's what he said. You, disciples, those gathered around him, you are closer to me than my blood relationships. You are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And understand, those disciples weren't exactly specimens of spiritual maturity and perfection. He's going to refer to them many times as being foolish, slow to learn, of little faith. On a number of occasions, he has to stop them from arguing with each other about who's the greatest. They don't believe. And in spite of their stubbornness, in spite of their slowness to learn, in spite of their ignorance, in spite of all the problems they gave Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, in the verse I shared with you just a few minutes ago, says, he was not ashamed to call them brothers. Folks, the same is true for us. In spite of our spiritual weaknesses, in spite of our immaturity, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his mother and his brothers and his sisters. This really dovetails nicely with what we're talking about this morning. This morning we learned that we can legitimately think of God as Abba, Papa. And we can think of Jesus as our older brother. That's how we can think of Jesus and how we can think of the Father. But here is something I think that is even more amazing. It tells us how God thinks of us. When God thinks of us, he thinks of us as his adopted children. And in this passage, we've learned that when Jesus thinks of us, he thinks of us as his brothers and his sisters and his mother. What an incredible description of the love of Jesus Christ for those who have attached himself, themselves to him. I want you just to think for a moment about the implications of that. You can call God Papa, and Jesus is your older brother, but it's not just you thinking like that. That's how God thinks. God the Father thinks of you as his adopted child. There is no better way to reflect what's in the mind of God than he has adopted you, and he thinks of you as his child. And Jesus says, I think of you as my true family. You are truly his mother, his sister, his brother, if you're in Christ. What amazing condescension. What amazing grace. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series, Jesus, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. And Tom, before we end our time together today, would you share a closing thought with us? You know, friend, my question for you is, what did you conclude about Jesus? 
Do you believe that he was a liar? Do you believe he was a lunatic out of his mind? Or do you believe he was, in fact, who he claimed to be, the eternal Son of God who had become man in order to die for us? My prayer for you is that you will come not only to understand who he is, but then to come to him in repentance and faith, asking to become his follower, asking him to change you and to make you his own. He invites us to come. One of the greatest invitations of the scripture is, whoever wills, let him come to me. Thanks, Tom. And friend, we want to let you know that Tom has a new book out titled, The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleash.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.